Welcome back to another episode of the Meet Kevin Report. Today we are on episode number 39. Almost, well, that's actually almost 40 days in a row of uh, <laughs> like 3 a.m. Or, or uh, lately it's been like 2.45 a.m. wake-ups and, and getting ready to, to be here and prepped. Uh, so thank you so much for being here. Seriously, uh, wouldn't obviously uh, be able to do this without you. So appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, I got to make sure I, uh, I, I regularly say that because I don't think I say that enough. Uh, and I really mean it. I appreciate you. Even even the haters watch, uh, which is which is actually really a compliment. Is you know some people they just hate my guts and they want to punch me in the face, but they but they still watch uh, or listen. And and I think that's fantastic. Uh, I don't want to get punched in the face, obviously, but, but you know, I appreciate it. It's really cool. So, uh, anywho. All right, well, a lot to talk about today, as usual, so let's uh, start uh, hopping right into it. Eli Lilly yesterday uh, cut insulin prices by 70% from the fourth quarter. This is fantastic uh, for seniors or people who are diabetic. Uh, there's now a $35 cap on insulin for Medicare that was imposed through the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, however, the price of insulin for most people was up to $275 a vial if you weren't on Medicare, which is absolutely insane. It's increased like 1,200% in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, and now by Eli Lilly cutting the prices to about $25 per vial, really what they're trying to do is they're trying to get ahead of the regulation that was coming for that, which would have probably price capped them. Uh, but, uh, but, but they're really trying to get the entire industry to move towards cheaper insulin pricing, which is fantastic. Around uh, 8.4 million of the 37 million individuals in America with a diabetes use insulin. Uh, so this is a fantastic. Uh, so good news. Alphabet's Waymo is apparently going through a little bit of reorganizing, reducing headcount by 8% and eliminating some engineering roles. And what was really interesting is I actually saw a Waymo vehicle drive past me in Scottsdale, Arizona. I put it on my Instagram story, which follow me on Instagram if you haven't yet. It's at meetkevin. I'll actually po be posting stories again today because should be flying out uh, in, in a couple hours here. Uh, but anyway, um, I posted on my Instagram story this Waymo car driving by and, uh, and I'm like, uh oh, Tesla has competition. And uh, Peter Schiff actually responded with the laughing emoji. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. That's awesome. Uh, yesterday, by the way, I, uh, t I, I posted a video about Rivian and, uh, you know, it's, it's really funny is I think a lot of people who actually invest in Rivian don't understand the difference between gross margin and net margin. So let me try to make it a little bit easier for people. Right now, Rivian on a gross margin basis spends $200,000 per vehicle they produce, okay? That means the stuff that they put on the assembly line, people and, and raw materials, they spend $200,000 to make $82,000 because that's about how much they sell the vehicles for. But then they have like an advertising department and research and development, and then they have administrators and executives, right? So on and so forth. R&D, SG&A, right? That's part of OPEX. Anyway, if you add that in, Rivian actually spends $300,000 per vehicle they produce. That's insane. <laughs> it's really insane. So if you want to legally rob or legally steal from a business, or you could even say donate to a charity, buy a Rivian. Because if you buy a Rivian, they're spending 300 grand to deliver you an $82,000 car. <laughs> it's kind of wild. 
Uh, it's actually pretty dang wild, but it's not as wild as Tesla. And so I do think it's worth talking a little bit uh, about what was actually good about Tesla yesterday. <laughs> uh, now I know that sounds a little crazy. Wait, <laughs> you know, I was a little, I was a little pissed off yesterday. Maybe because I felt like I spent, uh, you know, I don't know, four hours learning virtually nothing. But there were a couple things, and I talked about them yesterday as well. But I wanna, I wanna take the, the like, relaxed, non-alcohol version of Kevin and just look at the little bit of good that there was. And try to look at it with with a second, uh, a sort of less angry mindset. So let's start with one uh, a, a very particular screenshot, and that was this one right here. Okay. Now, what's so remarkable about this screenshot is something that we actually didn't talk about uh, just yet. Really, I don't think many people have touched on this one yet. Uh, and I don't know. I, tr I try my best not to pay attention to what other people are talking about. People ask me like, oh, why do you do that? I go, well, if I listen to what other people are saying, then I then then my perspective may be less unique, right? I might start rhyming with other people. And, and I don't want that. I, I want people to be able to come to the Meet Kevin channel and be like, oh, that is unique. I've never heard of that perspective before. So <clears throat> something that I thought was very interesting is this is the S and X over here, right? Well, look at this, folks. If Tesla's going to have a global electric vehicle fleet of 20 million vehicles, which first of all, it's supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, the idea was 20 million vehicles per year in the future, right? Uh, and, and a global vehicle fleet of 20 million is very different than a, you know, a production of 20 million a year, right? So it's like, wait a minute, Elon, when you say 20 million vehicles, are you talking about trying to get production to 20 mil a year? The highest amount of production a car producer has ever done was somewhere around 12 to 13 million vehicles. But hey, you know, we'll take 20 as a goal because hey, shoot for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll still have a pretty big pee pee. But anyway, uh, what do we got here? Either way you look at this, what I thought was really interesting was the way they divided up the numbers. Look at this. The S and X are listed here as 40 million units. And that is about one, maybe let's call it eighth or ninth of this vehicle right here, which is the what looks like the Cybertruck plus some form of passenger van. Now that's really interesting that the S and X, which are pretty popular cars, are expected by Tesla to really only represent about one ninth of solely uh, the production of the Cybertruck and this passenger or cargo van. In fact, the S and X are really only expected to represent twice uh, the, the, uh, oh, oh, sorry. This isn't 20 million vehicles per year. This is actually the, uh, the semi-truck. My bad. Okay, good. All right, great. Global electric vehicle fleet. That's interesting. So the S and X actually only represent 20, uh, or about twice as much per Tesla's expectations of the, uh, Tesla semi-truck. Now that's quite fascinating. So what I really thought in, in terms of a takeaway though here was that look at this, the model three and Y production, that was a killer of a change here. Look at this, Model 3 and Y production actually expected to be less, uh, roughly half of whatever this vehicle is over here. 700 million vehicles expected to be made of this 
smaller looking vehicle. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, it looks like that vehicle is, is smaller than this Model 3 over here under wraps. Uh, we could try to play pixel games over here, but I don't think it's going to make much of a difference given that this vehicle's sitting at more of an angle uh, than, than obviously the Model 3 over here, which you could see uh, the Model 3 sitting at roughly this sort of angle, whereas this vehicle is sitting at a substantially uh, uh, longer angle, <laughs> right? And it seems to be a lot thinner uh, than, than the Model Y. Uh, or three over here. But point is, let's try to look at something positive from Tesla, right? Uh, and, and I think that might be the hint they're trying to give us here. So let's, let's think about this. Let's phrase this right for a moment. What is something positive that we could say about the Tesla event yesterday? And it's that as much as we hated the event and the presentation and I was pissed about it, I find it remarkable that they think whatever this future vehicle is could potentially in the future have twice as many vehicles ever produced as the Model 3 and the Model Y. A 380 million vehicle production of the S and Y combined is roughly half of the 700 million unit production of whatever this vehicle is. We expect this vehicle probably to be essentially the Tesla Model 2. My guess is this would probably be for the Asian uh, markets, uh, whether that's uh, potentially India, uh, China, uh, you know, ETC essentially, the, the Asian uh, markets, possibly even South America as, as another possibility, where essentially a smaller car is more acceptable. And keep in mind, that in America, while we like big cars, there are less Americans than there are uh, obviously people in South America or in Asia, I mean, substantially less. I mean, even just China has like three to four times the population we do out here. Now, of course, we have much more money per capita than people in India or China uh, by, by a factor of, of uh, five to 10X. Uh, but over time, that will change. And I think it's very interesting that the expectation is this Model 2 could potentially generate substantially more vehicles produced than the 3 or the Y. This was one of the hints that Tesla really gave us. Uh, if, if we want to put on sort of the bullish hat, the sort of the, the buy the dip hat, right? Really what they're suggesting is, hey, pay attention. That smaller vehicle is going to be a game changer. Now, when we look at what Barclay said as sort of an investor day preview, they suggested that in the future, the Model 2 would probably be their lowest margin vehicle at around 21%. And that I believe is what we're showing here. But they're showing that also next to, look at this, 300 million vehicles for this Sprinter and potentially Cybertruck over here, right? We expect this to be a passenger slash cargo van. And then you've got the Cybertruck here. 300 million vehicles is essentially suggesting that this van and pickup, we'll call it maybe the, the cargo lineup, okay? The cargo lineup could be roughly as big as the three and the Y. Now that's fascinating that the cargo lineup alone could be roughly as big as the three and Y. That's pretty bullish on these new vehicles over here. Notice this is not saying, Tesla is not coming to us and saying, hey, we're going to produce the Tesla Roadster. I mean, maybe, maybe that's the Roadster, but I don't believe, I mean, the shape looks roughly in, in line with Roadster, right? But I don't believe Tesla would expect the Roadster to sell 700 million vehicles. 
because after all, if the S and X are only selling 40 million vehicles, why would the Roadster sell 700, right? It, it, it wouldn't, it, it would be way too expensive. So really they're suggesting here, let's, let's just do the math over here. They're suggesting that essentially the current lineup uh, would be responsible for about, oh, that's hilarious, 420 million vehicles at the current lineup, okay? So uh, let's, uh, let's just write that down over here. So the current lineup would be responsible for about 420 million vehicles. The new lineup could be responsible for about 1.1 billion vehicles. So consider that for a moment. 1.1 billion divided by 420. That means the new vehicle lineup could represent 2.6x the current vehicle lineup. Now that's actually really interesting. So this combined over here represents 2.6x the current uh, lineup, ignoring the semi-truck, right? So in other words, Tesla themselves thinks, hey, look, the cars we're making right now are not going to be the most popular vehicles. It's these future vehicles made on the new generation platforms that are going to be the most popular vehicles. Now, what's also interesting is that Elon Musk and, and that really got me thinking, Elon Musk in the Q&A suggested, hey, we're not going to retool these cars to be manufactured by our Optimus robot or, or in the more advanced method of manufacturing. Instead, we're going to have our new gigafactories focus probably on these new vehicles and the new vehicle platform. We're not gonna go back and retool all the old stuff because that would be very expensive to do. And Elon Musk actually rolled his eyes at the idea of the copy and paste model. Now, I'm the one who's been screaming copy and paste for a year, and I'll take egg on the face for, for you know, apparently not aligning with, with the Elon vision there. Fine, like, it's okay. I, I'm totally willing to be wrong because, see, in my opinion, when you make, uh, a, when you make a, a sort of an argument, when you have an opinion, you can identify when that opinion is starting to be wrong, right? Uh, and that's actually this. Look at Elon's face here. When he responds to the idea of the copy and paste model, okay? So my idea has been, hey, look, we've got the S's and X's. Let's let's master the S and X production. I'm sorry, not the S and X, the three and Y. Let's master the three and Y production at Giga Berlin and Austin, Texas, and then copy and paste those factories around the world. Tell us about South America, tell us about China, and tell us how, how we're gonna get to substantially more vehicles. But I think Elon has a different vision, and that vision is, no, 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 each factory needs to be uh, potentially an order of a magnitude more efficient than the prior factory, especially since our new vehicle platform is going to be focused on the new models. Just listen to this seven seconds here. The, the term you use, Lars, is copy-paste. So to get it right from the first time, um, you know, sir, the... Look at Elon's face there, okay? Elon's face here is uh, rolling his eye at the copy and paste idea and then shaking his head. I mean, the poor guy's falling asleep because he was probably up at like 2 a.m. the night before and then I think he had to go to the, the I'm not sure if he went to the NASA launch, but hey, I admire it. I, you know, I think it's awesome. But anyway, again, look at look at the copy and paste and then Elon's reaction. It's, it's as clear as day obvious what you need to know about copy and paste. Copy and paste is out the window. We're never saying it again with the exception of it's dead, okay? Watch again. The, the term you use, Lars, is copy-paste. So to get it right from the first time... Um... Elon not happy with copy and paste. And I think Elon's not happy with the copy and paste idea specifically because of this idea of this, this new vehicle platform. 
And I think that's what they see the future as. And that was probably uh, the uh, one of the most exciting sort of actually bits of new information we got here uh, is not only their opinion on which vehicles are going to be most popular, not the 3 and the Y, which I think is very interesting, and that they're not actually going to retool the existing lines for the SX3Y, but that the future uh, lines uh, are actually going to be more robotically capable, right? Right now they're showing humans working on these individual different pieces, and the idea was that, hey, we can, rather than assembling the car and then disassembling the car and reassembling the car, we could just manufacture the car in the various different pieces, so that way no part of the car is not being worked on while it's being manufactured. Uh, and, and really what you're saying is, let's have robots perfect each piece of the car, and then we'll puzzle it together like Legos. It makes sense. It initially was a little boring, this idea of, okay, 30% space-time efficiency improvement. But really what they're saying is, the Optimus robot is going to be building the most popular vehicles for Tesla. And the most popular vehicles for Tesla are yet to come. That's sort of the bullish argument. And if you believe in this idea, which it's obvious Tesla is really the, the master uh, and leader in innovation when it comes to uh, minimizing cost and maximizing margin. That's redundant, that's the same thing. But anyway, uh, obviously then this becomes a nice little by the dippy doodle opportunity here, right? Of course. Look, I, I, I am a long-term investor. I think the presentation was an SH9T show, uh, but, but putting the emotion of yesterday aside, this is, this is actually very interesting, uh, especially because this next-gen vehicle is actually really, I think, where they're thinking, uh-uh, that's going to be where we make most of our vehicles. Look at this again. 2.6 times as many vehicles are expected to be produced that don't exist yet relative to what is already available from Tesla. So this is really the big takeaway from the master plan is that, look, the next vehicles that are actually going to represent 2.6 times the production of the current lineup, are, which are going to be manufactured in a much more efficient manner, potentially 50% as inexpensive via the use of our robots or whatever. This is the master plan. Uh, this is the scale that nobody's really talking about yet. Uh, and so, okay, I will give that to Tesla. I will give that to Tesla that it was there. I think it was very poorly conveyed and only after sobering up, after basically, you know, uh, falling asleep on the Tesla presentation, does that become more apparent? Uh, but I think it's it's worth highlighting that because I do think as a long-term investor, this is uh, th this is actually phenomenally exciting. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm very, very interested by that. Somebody here writes, copy and paste assumes the current process is perfect. We should assume everything we do is wrong and can be improved upon. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to come across as suggesting that copy and paste didn't mean stop refining, right? Uh, and, and I understand then that's sort of like definitionally playing with copy and paste. But I mean, obviously, if you're going to like, okay, good, we've got a really good model for Giga Austin and Giga Berlin, let's do it again. Obviously, the idea is let's take everything we learned and if we could do things slightly better, great, but let's just get as many factories up as possible. I think that was the idea of copy and paste. It's let's ramp as many times as we can. But it actually seems like rather than ramping as many times as we can now, the real plan is how are we going to prepare for that next-gen vehicle platform that robots are basically uh, uh, assembling 
that we actually think is going to produce 2.6 times as many vehicles as the, uh, the next, uh, or, or as the, the current vehicles. So I think that's very interesting. Can we call this the Gen Z vehicle? Uh, what, the small one? Are you making fun of Gen Z? <laughs> uh, let's see here. Let's just see if there are any other comments. No, not really. Okay. All right. Uh, I do feel bad for MP materials, though. They, uh, I think they're down like 11% in pre-market because Tesla talked about getting rid of rare earth materials. Now, I've always been a big fan of staying away from commodities. Sorry, Steve. Steve, the course member, super into commodities. I'm always a fan of that because if, if the commodities use change, then, and then the company that benefits is the one making the changes. They, they're really agnostic to ultimately the material they use. You know, everybody can make all these lithium investments and if all of a sudden we find a better battery chemistry that doesn't use lithium, all those lithium investments go to poopsie doopsies and, and the company actually, the, the end manufacturer is the one that ends up winning, right? because they, they use a more efficient material, maybe one that's a lower cost or whatever. But anyway, MP Material did reply uh, on Twitter, and I thought it was kind of a nice little slap uh, at Tesla for their presentation. Uh, MP Material writes, did we miss something? Yawn. <laughs> it's like straight up MP Material's clapback. <laughs> I mean, MP Material's stock is, is obviously going to be a little sad today. It's down 10.6% because of this talk about potentially getting rid of uh, rare earth materials in, uh, in, in the engines of vehicles. And I, I do think that a lot of Tesla investors were sort of diversifying with MP materials. So that doesn't terribly surprise me. But yeah, sorry, MP. <laughs> I did think their clapback was pretty funny though. So uh, anyway, yeah. So I, I think the bottom line of that is look, you know, price target wise, does this really change anything for Tesla? No, the icing on the cake is still there. Obviously we still, you know, we went in with, with somewhat salty expectations anyway for investor day, just because Tesla's not that great at doing events. This just happened to be a very horrible event. I would be very upset uh, if, if I actually went out there for the event uh, because I think it was poorly put together. I think they could have really spent more time talking about what I just talked about and painting that vision. But this is what happens when you have engineers putting on a presentation. You know, Apple is a company of engineers, but they take the knowledge of the engineers and then they give real presenters that the tool to properly convey the information. Uh, you know, and, and that's, you know, when they're just relying on engineers to do it, you're just, you're just putting on basically a snooze fest. Uh, and I hate to say it, it's nothing against engineers. I think a lot of engineers will be like, no, Kevin, you're right. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't, this isn't meant to be offensive. It's just, just honest. <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, let's now talk about something else. How about, uh, let's jump on over to, uh, yeah, we got a little bit to talk about regarding the recession, recession likelihood and such. Let's jump into what some, a former Fed governor says about the likelihood of recession. Stand by. Now let's talk about the likelihood of recession. What just happened in the Eurozone? What are other folks as saying? And what's going on with five-year break-evens? What's the disaster happening today here on March 2nd? And what do I think about stocks, bonds, real estate, HELOCs? We're gonna go through all of that in this video, but first we're gonna jump on over here and we're gonna to listen to CNBC and this likelihood of recession being extremely high per former Fed governor. Let's listen in. 
bring in former Fed Governor Frederick Mishkin. He's now a Columbia University professor and a CNBC contributor. And Rick, it's really good to see you. It's been a while since we've gotten the chance to talk to you. You've got a new paper that's out, and it basically says that the Fed is damned if they raise rates, damned if they don't. You want to explain that? Well, I, I don't know if I'd put it quite that way, but the bottom line is that uh, in this paper, which we, we uh, presented the U.S. Monetary Policy Forum, that uh, one of the things we did is we looked at the hi history and then we actually did some economic modeling. And the history says, you look at 16 uh, 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 cases of where central banks actually tightened uh, interest rates when, in fact, they had to get inflation down. And this is in many countries, not just the U.S. In every single case, you got a recession. Uh, and so, uh, you know, maybe this time is different, but uh, that's usually uh, dangerous thinking. So just on that basis alone, uh, the likelihood of a recession is extremely high. And this is particularly true also from an economic theory viewpoint. When a central bank gets behind the curve, as the Fed certainly did, they made a, they made a, a bunch of mistakes, uh, particularly in 2021, which, as you might know, I've been on CNBC uh, since April of 2021 being very critical of the Fed on this. When you get behind the curve, yeah. in order to get inflation back under control, you have to raise rates a lot, and in fact, you inevitably have a recession. So the, the you know, this is just life. Uh, the Fed is actually doing the right thing now. They've actually gotten uh, 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 on board to do what they have to do. They stopped being gradual. They stopped being, uh, they were uh, not preempted. They now are. Uh, but the bad news is uh, that, uh, that uh, you got to get the economy to slow down in order to get inflation down when it's actually uh, burst up in a way that it has recently. Well, Rick, let me, let me just say, there are other people who look at what you're talking about in history, where feds try and raise rates and inevitably we wind up in, in a recession. They say it's just because, some people will say, it's because the banks will raise interest rates for too long, go too far, as some people are arguing our central bank is doing right now. There are people calling for a pause, saying, wait and look around and see the lag effect before you continue to raise rates uh, at, at, at additional paces. Um, what, what do you say back to that? Uh, I, th this is super dangerous thinking. So uh, uh, one of the things we look at in the paper is uh, we look at a, a situation which had a lot of parallels now, which was the Volcker disinflation. Uh, and many people, you know, Volcker's a huge hero. Uh, many people don't really remember what went on there. The Federal Reserve, when, in October 79, after Volcker uh, became chair, uh, raised interest rates to very high levels, uh, and 17% uh, actually was pretty high level. Uh, and then a recession started, and they backed off. Uh, the result was that inflation did not come down. Expected inflation did not come down. Uh, and in fact, uh, 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 th there was no ability to control inflation. The Fed had lost its credibility and now weakened it. Uh, but to Volcker's the credit, he then realized that this was a mistake, and then the Fed really took out the baseball bat, clobbered heads big time, raised uh, federal funds rate to over 20 percent. Uh, and then finally, it, it took several years of very high interest rates then to get inflation down. So uh, it is super dangerous thinking to think that the Fed should pivot, uh, that uh, when central banks have done that, they haven't completed their job, they lose credibility. And particularly important is when you've actually gotten behind the curve, you have to reestablish credibility and therefore you have to be tough. Now, it's true that you might go too far. Central banking, by the way, is not an easy business. It's, uh, there's a lot of art to it. There is science. Uh, you know, uh, economists have contributed to that science of monetary policy, but a lot is art. And so you never quite get it perfect. 
But on the other hand, uh, thinking that you need to back off because you're too worried about a recession is what produces much worse recessions than otherwise occur. People forget that the recession that occurred after the Volcker disinflation was actually the most severe in the post-war period. In fact, the, the unemployment rate went to above what it did during the global financial crisis. Uh, so uh, yeah. this is really uh, something that you while, really don't... While inflation was... All right. Yeah. So... Okay, what did we get out of this? Well, first of all, yes, the likelihood of recession is high. I mean, at this point, it seems like a recession is a foregone conclusion. It'd be really weird if we didn't get a recession because every kind of signal you could look at that's recessionary suggesting a recession. Hey, maybe we won't get a recession. I personally don't think it's that big of a deal whether we have a recession or not. I think what actually matters most is the depth of a recession. But what did he say that we could really take away from here? And how does this sort of echo what we're seeing at the Federal Reserve? Well, the biggest concern that Jerome Powell keeps talking about at the Fed is this idea that they would potentially cut rates and then have to raise rates again, because that could lead to what Jerome Powell calls an unanchoring of inflation expectations and lead to a substantially worse recession because basically they would have to raise rates a lot higher. That's exactly what this uh, former Fed governor just mentioned. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the biggest issue I think that we face going forward is exactly that, a, a breaking of inflation expectations. And unfortunately, even though I, I like uh, to be a bullish, I have to say, this chart right here is bearish. This right here on screen now is a chart of uh, inflation expectations. It is the five-year inflation uh, expectations chart. If I go ahead and draw a line over here, and uh, we just sort of look at where we are right now, uh, all the way back up to 2.7. I mean, look at this. Inflation expectations went down to under about 2.15 on the five-year break-even. We've just gone straight up. Uh, since the end of January and into Feb here. We are now sitting at the same levels of inflation expectations that we saw in October. And as a result, we are seeing the 10-year Treasury yield right back over 4%, which is horrible for real estate. Uh, people thought for a moment that, uh, I mean, and you can sort of align it with the 5-year uh, the break, break even over here. People thought over here in December and January, that's it, inflation is conquered. Uh, the 10-year Treasury yield is plummeting. We're down to 3.38%. Well, now after some of the hot data that we've gotten in January, and some of the stagflationary data that we got yesterday and today, this isn't good. Remember yesterday we got PMIs that suggested manufacturing uh, orders are, are, are co in a contractionary territory, but all of a sudden the Institute for Supply-Side Management suggests prices being paid are in an expansionary territory. In other words, prices are going up again. So now you're really looking at stagflation. You could look at this morning's report as well from the Eurozone. The Eurozone this morning reported 8.5% headline inflation. That's on a 20 country inflation estimate. 8.5% headline, that's down from 8.6, which is great, but sort of a slow decline. Uh, the expectation was 8.2, so you've actually come in higher than expectations. But the problem was that core came in higher again. Not only did core come in above expectations, but it actually rose from the prior report. The prior report was 5.3% and came up to 5.6%. So you actually have a lot of ammunition that you are giving to the bears right now, suggesting this inflation fight is not over. In fact, that's why you have people like this David Einhorn guy who's jumping on saying he's negative the stock market and bullish on bonds. 
milked the yield, so to speak. Basically, he was shorting the market all last year, and now he's suggesting, hey, you should still be short the market. So how does this play in with, with the sort of Nike swoosh recovery thesis? Well, I think all of it comes down to the dates that you have to write down, and the dates are very simple. It's March 10th, 14th, and 22nd. Those are the dates you want to pay attention to because we're going to get the rigged, I mean, the jobs report on the 10th, then we're going to get CPI on the 14th, and then we'll get the FOMC on the 22nd. And so far, the leading data is suggesting it's probably going to be hotter than expected. And that either means inflation is becoming uncontrolled, which would be the worst case scenario, or inflation is just going to be hotter for longer. And so that's where we have to sort of evaluate, okay, what does that mean from an investor point of view, right? Well, I think we can write that down as, uh, as basically three scenarios. So if, if we have, if we continue to have disinflation, which right now seems to be going away, well, that's obvious, right? That's basically just stocks, right? Up stocks. That's, that's very simple, uh, especially growth stocks uh, and even uh, profitless companies. One of the reasons, by the way, because ARK Invest absolutely killed it in January. Uh, and, and, you know, just I don't want to like blanket statement ARK Invest and say, you know, profitless companies are bad. I, I think there are some fantastic companies they invest in. There's some companies they invest in that I don't want to invest in. This is not, not any kind of slam there. But they did very, very well in January because if you can confirm a disinflationary narrative, not only will stocks go up, but you'll definitely see a, uh, a spike in risk, uh, especially profitless companies. Now, one of the reasons I personally have been, and this isn't personal financial advice for you, right? But this is just sort of broad uh, financial uh, commentary. You can even say financial advice. It's just not personalized, right? Um, you know, one of the reasons I've been a big fan of keeping some more cash uh, on the side, not not a lot, you know, 10%, something like that, and uh, only exposing myself to PP, you know, pricing power uh, kind of stocks, and stocks with high free cash flow is because of scenario number two. So scenario number one might be the disinflation narrative. Scenario number two is the, uh, the sort of uh, bumpy, the bumpy ride scenario, right? Uh, bumpy ride, where basically you have inflation that stays higher for longer. So inflation, uh, inflation higher for longer, uh, but but slowly trending down, right? But slowly down trending. So the channel is down, so to speak, but it's it, it's taking a little longer, right? And then of course you have scenario number three, which is the worst case scenario, and this is your Paul Volcker scenario, where basically the Fed has lost control. Uh, loss of control. That's your worst case scenario, obviously, right? I don't actually believe any of the data we're seeing right now is reminiscent of a loss of control. Even those five-year break-evens, right? This is not screaming loss of control. Let me hide myself for a moment. Over here in March and April, this was the market saying, oh my God, we're losing control, right? This here was the market saying, holy crap, we're screwed. Okay, so if this is loss of control over here, let's let's write that down so it's annotated and it's a, maybe a little bit more clear. So let's put a little background on this. There we go. Okay, good. So if this right here is loss of control, and we'll go ahead and drop that right here, then right here is probably your disinflation, right? This is your scenario number one. This is your scenario number three. Well, what the market is telling you right now is that yes, we are trending towards loss of control, but really where we're sitting is at the bumpy ride level, right? Bumpy ride. 
and, and so that's that's where I would align myself, where I am, I should, aligning myself right now with the bumpy ride thesis. And for me, the bumpy ride thesis says, okay, inflation's going to be higher for longer, so how do I invest with inflation that's higher for longer but trending down? Well, nothing's changed. You know, people say I'm the biggest flip-flopper ever, and yeah, that's true. But there are also a lot of things I am, uh, I'm very consistent on. And, and for me, even with the data we're getting so far, I still believe in that, that sort of Nike uh, swoosh. It's just going to be more bumpy, uh, sort of more turbulent than expected. Uh, and I do believe that means more pain for real estate for longer. So it sort of delays your bottom for real estate. With the exception of Miami, I mean, Miami's just absolutely killing it. Uh, and I think that's just sort of because so many people have been moving to Miami. But anyway, uh, you know, what is obviously the risk? So what happens? Now we have to ask ourselves, what happens if uh, the 10th, 14th are bad, right? So if these two dates are bad, well, then what happens is uh, there will be massive fear uh, between the 14th to 22nd. You'll have massive fear between the 14th to 22nd because we'll be worried about 50 BP from Fed, which won't happen, uh, but, but, but the markets will be very worried about that and we'll be worried about a verbal spanking, right? That's, that's where the worries will really be from. So if we have, now, now if we have a really, uh, but, but okay, let me put it this way. A, a somewhat bad, a somewhat hot 10th, uh, 14th won't necessarily mean we're in a uh, scenario three Paul Volcker, right? Uh, a somewhat hot 10th or 14th just reiterates bumpy ride, which to me reiterates pricing power stocks, right? If uh, like for me to be really concerned, real concern, like serious concern, like, oh my God, we need to change strategies potentially, or like have a little bit more of a cash allocation or whatever. Like, yes, the sell word, right? Real concern would, would be an explosion in, uh, in inflation, right? And, and where do you get this? You get this in the uh, wage, uh, 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 sort of wage data on wage growth on the 10th. And then you get it in obviously the CPI report. Uh, and this would be a, a breakdown in core. Uh, which is possible that you get that, especially as maybe used car prices pop back up. So uh, really, we're probably, if, if sort of I drew uh, a spectrum here, and uh, in my opinion, I put us at, you know, zero, which is full-on disinflation, and 100, which is full-on Paul Volcker, you're screwed. Uh, I would probably put us uh, right about here, which is about at the 40 level. So slightly, like really heavily in the bumpy ride zone, but slightly closer to disinflation than closer to Paul Volcker. And that's simply because of leading, leading wage data that we're seeing, right? Uh, leading wage data about wages coming down, the supply of labor skyrocketing, uh, what earnings calls are saying, what forecasts are saying. And really, as long as we end up with the bumpy ride scenario, uh, recession or not is not going to be that big of a deal. It's scenario number three that's bad because that's going to be basically depressive. Like that, that would be terrible. I mean, this is really where unemployment skyrockets, right? So scenario number three is depressive. 
Uh, scenario number one is just basically the moon. Uh, and then where we are is just probably the very wide middle, which is quite a bumpy ride. And so those are my sort of expectations going forward uh, and, and some commentary here about these massive fears. I, I really do not believe uh, the Fed has has any interest in in going to 50 beyond maybe just yapping about uh, a 50 like, oh yeah, open to it, you know, whatever. They say crap like that all the time. Uh, I, I don't expect that because in my opinion, it's too much of a credibility shot in the foot uh, suggesting that, uh, that uh, you know, they, they have once again failed. Uh, so, uh, you know, somebody here writes, if we had a very hot inflation report, 50 BP will happen. But in fact, it doesn't matter if they go 25 or 50, all the hikes they have done already are not yet reflected in the economy. Get ready for a clapping. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong, right? There is still a lag. Uh, I think we would have to have a substantially hot uh, 10th and 14th report for a 50 kind of clapping. Recessions can be natural and needed. I don't mind a recession. I mind the damage being done by pretending we can avoid it forever. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like just go through your medicine. Take your medicine and go through it. You know, let the staples get wrecked and go from there. Uh, let's see here. Der Staat ist der größte Inflationstreiber. Wenn der Staat weniger Straßen baut, wird die Nachfrage auch... Okay, basically, the government's to blame for inflation because they spend too much damn money. And maybe if the government stopped spending so much damn money, uh, we'd have less inflation. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's a really good point because not only uh, is, is that true... Uh, but, you know, we're still providing massive stimmy checks, right? It's just going to electric vehicle companies and chip companies now. So uh, Nick T also just retweeted an article uh, about uh, CPI running a little bit higher than PCE. Uh, but uh, there's this expectation that maybe those will flip uh, this year. I don't know how much that really matters, but he, he, he basically posted a couple screenshots here. Uh, oh, look, they talk about the wedge. How cool. Uh, but anyway, it's really just the difference between CPI and PCE. And really the thought is that CPI might fall faster than PCE. I don't terribly care, uh, you know, which one's falling faster or whatever. The Fed's preferred method obviously is looking at PCE. And what they're saying is here, the rate of falling of CPI is faster than PCE, which is great. You know, it sort of reiterates the, uh, disinflationary idea, but, uh, let's be real. We're still, um, we're, 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 we're still dealing with, one heck of a bumpy ride. Let's put it this way. I wouldn't want to be on, uh, you know, this, this sort of like, if this market were a plane, you wouldn't really want to be on it because you'd be very uncomfortable. You'd probably get motion sickness and, and, uh, and want to vomit. Now, <laughs> it, how does that actually relate to us holding stocks? Well, fortunately, there's no motion sickness there. Maybe where there is some motion sickness is the fact that the new, you know, yesterday we talked about this guy, Goolsby who now is the president of the Chicago Federal Reserve Bank. Apparently, the way he was hired was a company was basically contracted called Diversified Search Group. And that Diversified Search Group was put in, basically hired to find a new president for the Chicago Fed. And the person that was hired was actually the director's husband at the Diversified Search Group. So in English, a lady worked at a recruitment firm that was hired by the Fed to find a new president. And she's like, you know, it'd be perfect for this job. My husband. Kind of interesting. Anyway, that gives you a little bit of uh, maybe some jade for what's going on with the Fed. But, <laughs> you know, they, uh, 
they're just human too. They don't really know what the heck's going on. But these are things that I'm paying attention to to help me uh, to sort of help guide me. Uh, but again, you know, uh, look, would I be throwing my money into bonds or savings? Probably if if I was wanting to buy a lot of real estate, yes, absolutely. I'd probably be all in on, on, on bonds and savings. I'd just milk the yield until I was ready to buy real estate. Uh, you know, I, and I do think with the skyrocketing of the 10-year treasury yield, there's still pain, a substantial amount of pain, unfortunately, ahead of us. You know, you look at the bond yields right now. My goodness, it skyrocketed this morning. It's up seven bips. Look at this. You're at 4.07 on the 10-year treasury. I mean, you zoom out on this. I think we're at the highest level since like October or November now. Yeah, yeah, look at this. We briefly went to about 4.2 in October over here. But boy, this right here was where you started getting the idea that, oh, real estate's bottoming and people starting to buy again. Yeah, well, they're about to get spanked. Uh, yikes. So, uh, you know, hey, look, if I wanted to buy real estate, I'd be standing by. But I still maintain, uh, and, and, and we'll see. You know, I might have to change my mind after the 10th to the 14th. But uh, at this moment, I still maintain substantially the uh, Nike swoosh idea, uh, even though, you know, markets are, again, going to respond, I expect, quite volatilely. Anyway, uh, to uh, to the next few weeks because there'll be so much, essentially, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about what's going to come, uh, which entirely makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I would, um, you know, I, I guess wait and see. <laughs> uh, as far as Tesla, that darn thing's like down almost 8% in the pre-market right now. Wouldn't be surprised, by the way, if that sort of retraces back to about 175. That's probably where you have the best support right now for Tesla is about that 175 level. You can see that on screen here. And that's really just looking at our retracements over here. We got rejected at the 221 uh, and we generally don't like to float around in the middle. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a nice retracement. We're already going to get a massive red candlestick down to about 187. What I do think will be very interesting is what kind of buy the dip activity are we going to get from institutions when the market actually opens up? That will be very interesting. Are we going to get a lot of selling before these reports? Possibly. A lot of institutions have a very hard time justifying buying before inflation or jobs reports come out. So the next few weeks, uh, really the next two weeks, most importantly, the next 12 days are going to be very, very critical. So we'll pay a lot of attention to uh, specifically what's going on there. But that's roughly my, my take right there on, uh, on markets and what's going on. Okay, uh, huh, huh, huh. oh yeah, this was quite interesting. Okay, so I want to do a, a, just a brief talk on this. I know this is a little bit aside from, from the market, but it's worth talking about. So, um, stand by. All right. Uh, hold on, give me one more second here. Let me pull this up. <laughs> I tweeted so much crap yesterday about Tesla. I'm trying to pull up my Twitter feed, but it's just going to be just nonstop crap about Tesla's presentation. I'm sorry. I really apologize. It's just how I felt. I was falling asleep. Mm -hmm. All right, here we go. Now we got to talk about a tweet that I sent yesterday that actually did quite well. And the reason I'm talking about it is because I think it's a conversation that really is a society we got to start having. And guess what? I'm going to take the reins along with other people who are also taking the reins, not saying just me, and make an opinion on this. Now, as you know, opinions can be wrong, but at least it's good to have an opinion. And this is my take, okay? 
Look at my take. So I tweeted this yesterday. If, quote, biological men keep playing in women's sports, then soon there will not be any biological women left in competitive sports. Instead, we'll be left with biological men playing men's sports, biological men playing women's sports. And then I wrote, so much for gender equality. Now, unfortunately, this was spawned uh, by, uh, by a few different things, uh, some studies on what's going on, but also some, uh, some of the recent, uh, dare I say, uh, uh, you know, controversies that are happening. Here, for example, is a piece where we saw that a girls basketball team withdrew from the state tournament they were involved in to protest uh, to protest against a uh, transgender player who who dominates games and basically they say here that uh, a women's basketball team with uh, withdrew from the Vermont Division uh, 4 state tournament in protest to the fact that a, uh, a transgender individual was playing a biological male was playing against uh, women and, uh, and, and uh, biological women, I, I suppose I should say. Uh, and, uh, and they write here, allowing biological males to participate in women's sports sets a bad precedent for the future of women's sports in general. And, and they write down here that uh, in one game, the individual blocked seven shots. That means seven shots, typically closer to the basket, so uh, much more likely to go in, were blocked by the guy who was taller than every girl on the floor and can jump higher and is likely significantly uh, stronger. In what world is this remotely fair? Uh, they write here. And, and there are some comments here about how this is why men's competition records, sprinting, jumping, weightlifting, dwarf women's. Uh, there's talk about safety concerns and, and, and studies related to this. And I thought it was really interesting because when, when I talked about it, uh, I tweeted uh, about it, and uh, and somebody replied and said, "Oh well, you know, uh, transgender individuals have been allowed in the Olympics, you know, for for since 2004." Somebody replied, uh, and a tweet replied uh, me with that, and I'm like, "I don't know about that." So what I did, so I did a little bit of digging to see what we've got, uh, and first of all, it's it's worth noting that. Uh, the percentage of individuals that are identifying as uh, LGBT uh, in, in this statistic here, which, which would include, you know, sort of potentially a boost in, in the trans population, has been going up substantially over the past few years. Uh, in fact, if you go back to 2014, you, you, you had closer to, on average, about maybe two or three percent of Americans identifying as LGBT. Uh, and, and in 2022, we're up to about 7.2 percent. So you've had this large increase uh, in, in identification. And, and possibly that's because uh, it's become more acceptable, right? But I thought this was very interesting. Uh, this history here. In 2003, uh, the International Olympic Committee convened an ad hoc committee to discuss the issue of transgender athletes and what they actually required that to be eligible for participation in female or male competitions, you would actually have to complete the surgery to reassign your gender. So in other words, not only do you have to go through hormone therapy for two years after your like basically sexual reassignment, but like you, you have to do something uh, really irreversible here, right? Like this is like you are full committing. And as a result, you actually didn't have a transgender person until 2008, uh, 2008 in the Olympics in the hammer throw. 2012, you had the same person 
uh, a, a, a biological male who competed in a women's uh, hammer throw ended up placing fifth. 2015 transgender male qualified for uh, a, a, a world championship here. Uh, and uh, essentially, the uh, they, they also, what did they say here? They they removed, oh yeah, here. they, they uh, The Olympic Committee specifically asked for the removal of the requirement of the surgeries, right? Because the surgery is sort of gender reassignment surgery is... is yeah, again, pretty irreversible and pretty pretty big deal here. Uh, and uh, it was very interesting that you really only had that discussion start an agreement being made uh, starting in about 2015. Uh, and so those who transitioned from female to male are eligible now to compete in the male category without the reassignment. That's essentially what they've now aligned, uh, allowed at the Olympics. So in other words, since 2003, yeah, they've allowed trans individuals in the Olympics, but only if you went through the whole surgery to reassign your gender. And it was only in 2015, at the end of 2015, that they allowed females to compete in male sports without the reassignment, like the actual surgery, right? But so far, you still need to have the surgery to actually compete in the Olympics uh, as, as a trans individual. Uh, and so this is where a lot of folks are suggesting, hey, like, it's it's not fair uh, that trans individuals are, are able to play in women's sports because basically you're potentially going to just kill women's sports. And when you look at studies on this, uh, which there are plenty, you, you, quick Googles of them will pull them up. But what you find uh, is that people who go through sort of the hormone replacement uh, still have statistically uh, a, a, a 10 to 20% advantage uh, over uh, biological women as, as a biological male uh, for, for up to two years of going through sort of testosterone suppressant hormone uh, applications. And so you really have uh, a, a competitive advantage for males for certainly the first two years uh, of, um, of, of essentially transitioning, becoming trans, uh, and, uh, and here it is. It's actually a Guardian piece. Uh, I, actually, I believe I saved that right here. Let me just show you the stat so you could see it directly because the Guardian did a whole piece on this, and, uh, and then it gives us the exact sort of stats and numbers on it. Here it is. Okay, the Guardian. So on screen here, uh, trans women retain a 12% edge in tests two years after transitioning. Groundbreaking new study on transgender athletes has found trans women retain a 12% advantage in running tests even after taking hormones for two years to suppress testosterone. Uh, and, and, and so there, this is why the International Olympic Committee uh, suggests that uh, trans individuals may have an unfair competitive advantage. The other thing that is, is deemed somewhat unfair by some folks here is this idea that right now, if somebody becomes uh, trans, they have to prove that they have less than 10 nanomoles per liter of testosterone. However, that's still potentially as much as 10 times as high as a biological female's testosterone levels, which range, range between 0.12 and 1.79 nanomoles uh, per liter. Uh, and so over here, you have some more information on the studies. Uh, one thing that was very interesting was that uh, individuals who uh, hadn't started their transition, trans women, that, so men, biological men who became women, performed 31% more push-ups and 15% more sit-ups in one minute on average than the biological 
women and ran about 21% faster. Uh, and it took a full two years, really, uh, for some of uh, some of those advantages to go away. However, there were still some advantages that remained, even after two years. Now, there are also some studies suggesting that after two years, you start getting more alignment. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, this this is something that I think society's really got to look at and say, you know, is is there potentially an argument to be made that maybe there should just be a different division entirely. Like maybe you have biological men's sports, biological women's sports, and then trans sports, right? Is is that potentially uh, where the future goes? Because I think we circle back over here and when we look at the data, it's very difficult to argue, uh, in my opinion, that uh, people who are a bi biological man, certainly any time before two years, uh, and, and even after that, you still have advantages. Uh, can fairly compete with biological women. So curious to see what uh, what, what what everybody else thinks about that. But uh, but that's um, you know just sort of some of my thoughts and and some more detail in terms of why I have those thoughts. And, you know I'm not here to always say hey my opinion's right or it's perfect. It's just to say hey look I have an opinion. Here's why I have the opinion uh, and I'm open to talking about it. But but yeah this uh, this is one uh, that's quite interesting uh, to me. So anywho. All right, let's uh, let's go back to market talk. So uh, next thing we've got to talk about is ah yes, the car buble. Oh, that's an interesting one too. All right, let's hit this. Oh boy, there's there's a lot to talk about. I gotta start these streams earlier. <laughs> that's the that's the real uh, issue. Now we got to talk about the car bubble because, folks, the car industry is not very happy. The percentage of borrowers who are at least 60 days late on their car payments is rising. Not only is it rising, but those delinquencies are now being associated with questionable tactics by banks, basically loan extensions. This is essentially banks saying, hey, look, even though we're in a used car bubble and people can't afford vehicles uh, uh, really anymore without ex uh, highly stretching themselves, hey, as soon as people start missing their payments, let's just make it easier for them by extending how long it'll take them to repay their loan. This is kind of some of the stuff that you heard during the COVID era where essentially, hey, look, can't make your payment. What if we, instead of having a five-year loan, we just say you have a 10-year loan now? That'll lower your payment and it'll give you more time to repay that doesn't really take away the financial stress and actually increases the total interest that an individual would end up paying for their car. But it's definitely leading to a lot of raised eyebrows about what could end up being a big disaster, really, for poor individuals. And we've said this many a time before, but recessions are usually worst for poor individuals. They're the ones who get screwed the most. They're the ones who are least able to overcome job loss. They're the ones who are least able to overcome high payments. I'll give you an example. Bloomberg put a story together talking about interviewing this individual named Chris Martin. Him and his wife were underwater on two cars that they had. Underwater means the value is here and how much they owe is here, which means their asset is worth less than their liability. Well, apparently they were underwater $14,000 on two cars but they needed a new car. So what they did is they traded in both of their two cars for one Ford Explorer. And now they had a loan of $66,000 
on a $49,000 Ford Explorer. They're literally upside down $17,000. If they get into a car accident with that car, they're screwed, especially if the insurance only pays them out a fair market value at the time, which might be even less. They would have to come out of pocket to pay off that loan, potentially by seventeen dollars or more thousand dollars. This is why negative equity in cars is really, really dangerous because you get into an accident and now you don't have a car and you owe $20,000 to pay off your loan. Now you're really screwed and you're knocking on the door of bankruptcy, especially since trade-in values are cooling. We have recently had a little bit of a sort of anomaly of data in December and January where used car prices have actually picked up. But overall, we do see a longer term trend of trade-in values cooling, meaning more and more people are upside down. The average new car interest rate right now is 6.9%. That's up from 4.3% a year ago. And now you have two out of 13 people today with car payments of greater than $1,000. Two out of 13. If we get a percentage on that, that means 15% of people have a car payment of over $1,000. New cars are up 20% since the pandemic. Used cars are up 37% since the pandemic. And yeah, at a certain period of time, there was there's this anomaly where basically you were able to buy a, use, a new car, drive it for a couple years, and then sell it for more than you paid for it, thanks to all the inflation we saw. Uh, but a lot of new car dealers and used car dealers are worried What's going to happen? And what are we starting to see now? 90 month loans, literally. That's how people are getting qualified. Instead of having uh, a five year loan for your car, like a 60 month loan, now we're going to 90 month loans. And it makes me wonder what's next? Are we going to start seeing the 50 year mortgage? But take a look at some of the tweets from Mr. Car Dealership Guy. I enjoy following him on Twitter. He's very bearish. He's an individual who runs a used car dealership and he does not like what he's seeing. He says new car prices are a disaster. One in four cars sold in December had an MSRP of over $60,000. A year ago, that number was one in 13. Now note, uh, I just had a family member who, uh, who actually bought a, a Toyota RAV4 and they spent $68,000 on a new RAV4. And I'm like, my goodness, you got ripped off. Because you go over here to Tesla, a Model Y. You could get a Tesla Model Y, folks, for a purchase price of $55,000 minus $7,500 because of the tax credit. So that means you could have gotten this for somewhere under $50,000. You got ripped off by somewhere around 20 grand for essentially the same size vehicle. And this is the long range model with 330 miles. It's plenty more than enough, especially with the Tesla supercharging network. Uh, and, and then of course you get the autonomy and everything. I, I don't understand uh, why you would still buy a legacy vehicle, but you know, it's, it's like what Elon Musk said yesterday, buying a legacy vehicle right now is like buying a flip phone. Uh, but anyway, so to be clear uh, over here, this is indirect lending. That's okay. So we've got some indirect lending, direct lenders offering uh, 90 month terms. Sadly, most people don't realize that these sort of 90 month terms are happening too often. Not only that, but also I think this was in response. Yeah, this was in response to this. Look at this. 1998 Ford es Escort bought for $289 a month for the next seven years. And here's the photo of it. 1998 Ford Escort 
Okay, what's remarkable about this is that could have been my childhood car. Because when I was uh, eight to 14, my mom drove around an old Ford Escort that was that exact color. And, uh, you know, so, so when I was a kid, uh, you know, and that car was a beat to crap. Uh, because we got it used and it would like break down and like smoke would come out of it. You know, I don't know, like the radiator broke down and stuff. But anyway, that's insane. You're paying almost $300 a month for this? Holy smokes, it's just crazy. Uh, and anyway, so going back with some of these others over here, look at this, $111,000 for a Jeep for the Grand Wagoneer. This is insane, why? And it explains why Carvana's net income is this. I mean, I love this post right here. Look at Carvana's uh, uh, net income. Negative many millions of dollars to now negative billions. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's definitely a, a bubble indicator for you. Uh, auto, new auto loan rates have just hit new records. New cars, you're looking at 8.6% for a new car loan right now. Used cars, according to dealer track, sitting at 13.65%. However, you're still seeing an increase of used car uh, prices at dealer auctions. And so there's the potential for prices to rise for used cars going into the next uh, couple months here, which might show up in CPI uh, in March and April. Uh, so that would be sort of our April-May releases which is not great because that means something that was an anchor for inflation is actually potentially now actually going to prop up inflation. That's, that's not great, that's bad. So there are definitely some risks here. I would, I would absolutely be very cautious of buying a new vehicle going into a recession. I don't think it's a good idea. You'd have to have a very good business purpose for buying any kind of depreciating asset, like a car or a plane or a boat. Uh, definitely, I would probably stay away from boats. Um, planes are also very expensive in aerospace right now, but cars are just ridiculous right now as well. There was a, a GM dealership that was interviewed in Virginia, and the, the, the general manager was suggesting that people who come in and buy Volvos often pay cash and they'll be okay. But it's the Kia buyers at the other end of the showroom who often finance with us that we're worried about. Uh, and so really, look, I hate to say it, but this is an example, again, where capitalism is not screwing the rich people. It's screwing poor people. Again, you're paying 300 bucks a month for a 1998 Ford Escort because you have to, so you can get around to your job. Poor people are the ones getting screwed here. And so this is one of the reasons uh, and, and, and takeaways as a stock investor that one of the things that I'm least interested right now in investing in are basically things that uh, 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 poor people have to buy. Uh, and again, it sounds terrible, but that's why I'm staying away from staples. I think 2023 is, is going to be a poopy, crappy, doopy year for staples. Uh, McDonald's, Cheesecake, Red Robin, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola, I don't care. Costco, all Kroger, uh, whatever. All of these sort of staples, I would be very nervous about because you're going to be hit with the highest amount of cost. Uh, you're really taking it in the margin with the lowest amount of potential upside at these companies. My take, especially since a lot of those companies did very, very well in 2022 because that was sort of the trade. Oh, oh, get rid of growth and go into those. I'd rather right now be at pricing power stocks where rich people and rich, rich businesses are shopping. And that's planes, uh, that's uh, chips, 
for, for server investments and investments into AI, uh, that's potentially uh, cybersecurity, that's potentially uh, uh, SaaS, uh, although I do worry about some of these companies in the, um, uh, in, 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 you know, their, their potential needs for diluting shareholders if they don't have high free cash flow. Well, some companies can be reporting a loss like uh, Bill.com, but actually have a lot of high free cash flow. So you kind of have to go through the individual reports on that to find. Uh, and, and then, of course, your 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 energies or, or like, you know, a Tesla or something, which is selling generally to a, a higher end uh, buyer. Uh, and you've got plenty of a dip opportunity today after that disaster of a report from Tesla. But do keep in mind these higher rates they will affect Tesla demand as well. And that's something important to keep in mind. But also you can somewhat offset that by remembering that the typical, the median buyer of a Tesla last year was somebody who had an income of uh, a household income of $140,000. So you're already talking about basically the top 10% of incomes are buying Teslas. You know, you're, you're, uh, poor folks aren't, aren't buying Teslas anyway. So that's just something to pay attention to. So anyway, that's a little bit of a rant on cars. So I'm gonna call that the car rant. All right, fantastic. Now we got to rant about something else. We got to rant about East Palestine. Uh, win rant. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, all right. So yeah, okay. This is gonna be a quick, easy one, but uh, it's very unfortunate. And uh, and, and I really want to show you that the point of this is showing you how how uh, easy it is to to manipulate uh, information. All right, ready for this? Here we go. The train derailment of East Palestine, Ohio, is a disaster that everybody should be paying attention to, specifically because of how the government is easily able to lie to you. Now, I'm really worried about this, but I want you to be aware of this. You may have heard many a time already that the EPA is monitoring air quality levels and water quality levels. And the EPA is suggesting, hey, our testing is showing everything is fine. Nothing is outside normal toxic levels. You're good to return home, live in East Palestine, Ohio, drink the water, whatever. But now what I'd like to do is show you how potentially we could be manipulated. First, we believe that a lot of the tests that the EPA is technically conducting are really just tests that are being directed by the EPA for the railroad to conduct. So the railroad is basically subcontracting testing companies. And what kind of tests are they performing? Well, again, air and water tests. But potentially, why could that be a mistake? Well, it could potentially be a mistake because of things, these, these things that are called dioxins, which don't actually stay in the air that long. You know what they do? After you burn a plastic, dioxins can go up into the air, and then where do you think they go? They don't necessarily go into the water where they wash away or, in, or stay lingering in the air. Where do they go? They go in the soil. And what tests are not being conducted? Soil tests. Yeah, that's exactly how the government can lie to you. In fact, consider this. In the 1990s, there were uh, a lot of chrome manufacturing plants near elementary schools in Pico Rivera, California. And there was one chrome manufacturing plant that was very, very close to the school within about a thousand feet of the school's playground. And when you dip stuff into a chrome bath, 
that chrome bath has a lot of bubbles on it, which leads to the, the noxious chemicals uh, that are a byproduct, very extremely toxic byproduct of uh, chrome manufacturing, chrome dip manufacturing, which is leading some in California to call for the banning of, of, of chrome at all um, and, and chrome plating, right? It's a chrome plating process. You take something, you dunk it in, uh, and, and then you electrify the solution, uh, and then essentially you're, you're chrome plating. But anyway, those toxins can go into the air. And then where do those toxins go? Well, they don't stay in the air. They settle into the soil. So if you now go turn off the chrome plating process, and you measure the air, oh, no chrome toxins detected, everything's safe, go back to work, everyone. But wait a minute, what happened at that chrome plating facility that's now closed that was next to the school? Uh-oh, a bunch of the students, about 20 of the students and about eight of the teachers in the late 90s got cancer, and many of them died. Yeah, elementary school students. Why? Because of the toxic residual remnants that were in the soil, in the kids' playground. That is what matters. But that is exactly what's not being tested. So I'd like to be someone who actually calls out that if you live in Ohio or in East Palestine, or you believe the government, I, I'll tell you, my tinfoil hat grows by the day, and it's terrible, but my tinfoil hat grows by the day. Uh, if the government is so wanting to be so careful, why is soil not being tested? And so what do we have here? Here's a, a, a report from a local media station over in East Palestine, and I thought this was really interesting, because here is a couple uh, that runs a farm, and uh, they talk about how they grow, uh, you know, grass-fed uh, uh, beef. They raise chickens and so on, right? Uh, and and basically, we know this this disaster happened on February third. On February, uh, we had the train derailment on the third. On the sixth, you had the sort of uncontrolled explosion that was designed to be the lesser of two e uh, evils. And a lot of this crap went up into the air. You know, they had uh, their lips burning, their eyes were watering, whatever. They left. They left their animals behind. But now they're coming back, and Experts are suggesting, wait a minute, why are we not testing the soil? Uh-oh, the rest of the article disappeared. Ah! But anyway, the article goes on to talk about how experts suggest, hey, the soil is what should be tested. And what you should be looking for are actually dioxins that sit in the soil. And the problem about dioxins is the EPA considers dioxins to be one of the most 10 toxic chemicals that result from an industrial process in the United States. But the problem with dioxins is there's really no way to get rid of them. The only way you get rid of them is by preventing them from being released from the industrial process in the first place. Because dioxins are known to mess with your immune system and cause cancer. And the problem with that is if dioxins are sitting in the floor, they could enter our food chain and lead to more cancer-causing essential introduction of chemicals throughout our entire food chain. And so where do dioxins generally rest in your body? Well, in your liver and in fats. And unfortunately, that's where you can get a concentration of dioxins. Where from? From animals. Because cattle who eat, uh, you know, the grass, which is obviously from the dirt, or cattle who eat feed, which is made from, let's say, compressed hay or other things that are grown on the floor, are concentrating dioxins into their liver and in their fats. 
and eventually those dioxins will end up on steak plates throughout the country. And that's where you get a concentrated dose of dioxins. Now, look, I'm not saying stop eating animal meat and panic about eggs and chicken and beef or whatever, but I am saying if the government really gave two craps, they would be testing the soil where animals are basically eating and living on the soil. But you know what's actually happening? Take a look at this. Here's a report from the Ohio Star. Forestry workers find animals dying at alarming rates in Ohio parks following East Palestine train derailment. Although Governor Mike DeWine and the EPA continue to assure Ohioans that recent air monitoring and water sample tests have shown no concerns with air quality or water quality in East Palestine following the catastrophic train derailment, forestry workers have found that animals are dying at alarming rates. In fact, Apparently, a wildlife biologist and consultant for the Federal Forestry uh, Department have reported receiving hundreds of calls on both this Sunday and Monday from colleagues who say forestry workers have found hundreds of dead animals in Ohio's parks. Several labs across the country have received specimens of whole minks, deer, elk, worms, and livers of such animals, and are finding toxicities that are off the charts. Remember, this stuff concentrates in the fats. This is why people say don't eat certain fish uh, like a top of the food chain fish too often like swordfish. Why? Because swordfish are like a top of the food chain animal. So what they do is they eat the fish that eats the plankton that eats the potentially toxic plants, right? So the small animals eat the toxic plants. A bigger animal comes along and eats uh, the, the smaller animal that's been eating the toxic plant, but they eat a lot of the smaller animals. And so they concentrate all of the chemical in their livers. Then they get eaten by a bigger fish or a bigger fish. In the case of here, it would be like chickens eating, you know, plants and then uh, potentially uh, feed being made out of those chicken and, and plants and then cattle eating that feed in those plants, right? And concentrating this, right? Into essentially their livers. It's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. The stuff resides in the fat. Uh, but unfortunately, no tests of soils are being conducted. Instead, the governor, apparently, of Ohio is disallowing scientists from getting access to state parks. I kid you not, it says right here, the source also told the Star that DeWine is allegedly blocking scientists from getting into state parks. But the scientists are finding ways to circumvent that. And this is where they're finding dead animals because of the chemicals in the soils. Now, it's a developing story by the, uh, you know, Ohio uh, star here. Take everything with a grain of salt, or should I say a grain of dioxins? Oh, that's terrible. Too soon. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, we don't know who these sources are, right? We could be suspicious. But let me just be clear. The point of me making uh, or, or talking about this is to say that the government is telling us everything is fine. No need to be alarmed. We're testing the air and the water. What about the damn food supply or the soil where all the crap is? That's where the toxins are. They fall into the floor, okay? It's like, it's like think about it like nuclear fallout almost, right? When there's a, a nuclear event uh, and, and somebody puts on, let's say, a radiation suit, uh, nuclear material washes off. You have to wash it off of you because it's heavier. And even though it could stay in the air for a period of time, it usually falls to the soil. And that's where most of the radiation is. This is why you can actually go to like Chernobyl 
and uh, or, or any kind of area where there's been a nuclear disaster. And you could measure the air and the air could be totally fine or maybe like modestly elevated, but still within safe parameters, right? Then you kick up the dirt and all of a sudden the radiation goes off the chart because the particles that are the most toxic are actually falling into the soil. They're not sitting in the air or water forever. They're dropping down to the soil. And that's where the government is basically giving us a big middle finger saying, screw you, we don't even wanna know. Sad, just sad, just sad. All right, oh dear Lord. Uh, it's just so depressing. I don't know, I, I get depressed by this stuff. Uh, like I, I think you need, you need politicians who like care. It's just, it's, you know, seems to be hard. Good Lord, I have a lot to talk about. Um, I don't have enough time to get through all the stuff I need to talk about again. I need to start even at why, I guess I started at like 4.45 today. I really need to get to 4.15. All right, talk about one more thing and then we'll go to the course member live. All right, let's talk about advertisers and stonks. Uh, do keep in mind that uh, markets yeah, the Nasdaq's going a little deeper red and you're still sitting at 4.07 on that 10 year. Uh, Tesla down 8% after that disaster. MP material down 12, wow. Hey, maybe it's a buying opportunity, who knows? But what should we be talking about? Ah, yes, we should talk about advertisers. Let's talk about digital advertising and specifically some stocks that you might be interested in as a potential investment, hashtag not personalized financial advice, of course, but as a potential investment. A lot of folks come to me and they say, Kevin, what do you think about Disney? What do you think about Netflix? And one of the concerns that I have is both Netflix and Disney have an extremely expensive CapEx structure for creating new content. They spend a lot of money on building studios and producing content. And their goal is that they can subsidize some of that content with advertising. However, according to Netflix's own earnings call, they're not seeing the kind of adoption for ad-supported Netflix streaming as they had hoped. And this, in my opinion, makes me much more interested in rather than potentially investing in the quote-unquote gold of digital streaming, it makes me much more interested in actually investing in uh, advertising companies that might be benefiting regardless of whether we're heading into a recession or we're heading into uh, this sort of uncertain future for how we're going to monetize digital streaming. After all, we know a lot of companies have told us we are running into a lot of potential risk when it comes to advertising. American Express in their earnings call told us that businesses are spending less money on advertising. Google told us that advertising demand is flat to negative. For YouTube, it's straight up been negative for the last two years. When you look at Meta, you have warnings on advertising. When you look at Amazon, you have warnings on advertising. Advertising across the board seems to be a risky venture right now. And it makes sense. I mean, we could look at some reports to see just that. Ad budgets, here's a report uh, that suggests ad budgets are set to slow even more in 2023. I believe this was a Forbes report here. Lower ad budgets in 2022 affected nearly every ad stock, including companies like Alphabet and Meta. Uh, and what's happening here in this next year going forward? Well, look at some of the ad spending. First, 
China, according to insider intelligence, will weigh heavily on the 2023 numbers as the second biggest digital ad market is expected to quote, post its lowest digital ad growth on record due to tougher regulations and economic headwinds. US, the US advertising market is expected to grow by about 5.9% in aggregate in 2023, and that's lower than the 9% we saw in 2022. However, look at this. On a brighter note, the article says, the connected TV market is expected to grow 14.4% in 2023 and will grow faster than the overall advertising market. Linear TV in exchange is expected to fall by 6.3%. And 2023, according to uh, this individual from, Pro well, okay, well, I mean, this person might be a little biased. He's a director of programming CTV supply at, at Xander. 2023 marks the new age of CTV. Yeah, whatever. Okay. I, that's way too biased for me to really uh, even have read that. But anyway, the point is we know that the ad sector is slowing growth substantially. We know that expenses at Disney and Netflix are through the roof for investments into advertising. So potentially, where does it make sense to invest? Well, ARK Invest is a big fan of investing in Roku. I personally have some qualms about investing in Roku, and I'll show you specifically why. So first of all, this is the last uh, earnings statement from Roku. And what you could see is that first of all, they're massively negative on their devices revenue. We know that they don't actually make money from their devices, that's fine. But what we do notice is that you actually have seen margins at Roku compress 500 basis points year over year for the fourth quarter. And so now it's sort of like, oh, dang, like where do you invest in the advertising sector, right? It's, it's tough. You've actually grown platform advertising revenue by 4% at Roku. Now that's great, fantastic. Revenue has grown by 4% at Roku, but for a company that's losing money, that's potentially not the greatest thing that we wanna be hearing, that revenue's only growing at 4% at Roku. It's trading like a growth stock, yet, it's not really growing that much. It's growing by about 4%. Not only is it growing by about 4% uh, year over year here, uh, but you're seeing that margin compression and an explosion in sales and marketing. If you look at the sales and marketing line, you'll see $297 million spent on sales and marketing. 297 is an explosion of 82%. They spend 82% more money on sales and marketing to grow revenues by 4%. That's insane. According to Bloomberg, revenues for Roku are expected to remain negative through 2026. So you have an infinite PE ratio for this company. Not only that, if we look at their current assets, you're sitting, you're, you're decent, you're sitting decently at cash and cash equivalents of about $2 billion. They've got about 1.1 in current liabilities. So you've got maybe about $800 million of rough free cash. But the problem is for the year ended 2022, uh, this company had negative free cash flow. Roku had negative free cash flow of $172 million. So yeah, you've got a little bit of a run rate, right? Uh, you've got maybe three, four years at this burn rate of negative uh, free cash flow. You've got the extra cash there at Roku, but you're paying a pretty high valuation for a company that's not growing well at all. 4% increase in top line revenue while spending 82% more on sales and marketing. 
kind of wild in my opinion. Now that's just looking straight at the shareholder letter. You could also look uh, at, at some other sources uh, and, and see basically the same thing being said, but a little bit differently. Here, for example, and I know some people don't like it, but this is why I like going to the sources myself. But here, for example, is Motley Fool and their opinion. And they usually are bullish, it seems, on a lot of things, but not on Roku. Look at what they had to say. Roku's audience is still expanding, but its margins are crumbling. Its gross margins, gross margins, that's different from the margins that I talked about because I specifically talked about streaming margins where you get a 500 basis point fall year over year. This is their gross margins combined falling about 190 uh, to over 40 uh, to 42% in the fourth quarter. Uh, we're looking at, again, at di slightly different margins here. Uh, the gross margin of its platform business, which generates most of its revenues from the integrated ads on Roku, fell, uh, fell from 60.6% to 55.8% thanks to macro. Uh, and then, of course, their set-top boxes margins also fell. And so this sort of begs the question, where is Kevin liking the advertising business? Well, many of you already know this, and maybe you've already said it out loud. To me, it's obvious. It's Trade Desk. I've personally been a big fan of investing in Trade Desk. This is their Q3 report. Let me grab their Q4 report, which is right here, and take a look at why I like Trade Desk. So Trade Desk grew its sales and marketing expenses by 28%. So Trade Desk grew sales and marketing by 28% year over year, and their year over year growth was 24%. So rather than growing revenue 4% at, Rev at, at, at uh, Roku and spending 80-something percent more on marketing, they grew revenues 24% year-over-year while only spending 28% more on sales marketing. They also had that drop-off on uh, stock-based comp for their GNA, so you had a larger net income this quarter, but you actually have growth. Now, that growth is slowing. Don't get me wrong. It is a slowing sector, right? You had growth that slowed from 31.8% year over year to in the last quarter, just 24% growth. So growth is slowing. It is that recessionary pain that you are seeing, but you actually have a cash flowing business. Not only is it cash flowing, but the company is performing substantial buybacks because they've got plenty of money to cover their payables, and any of the extra cash that they have, along with their free cash flow of $475 million for last year, they are performing stock buybacks, which is great. So here's a company, in my opinion, that if you're looking for something in the advertising space that is basically connected TV advertising, Trade Desk is the one that has all the pricing power. Now think a little bit more about, uh, about connected TV for a moment. Connected TV is nice because you're not facing the antitrust competition that maybe Google or Facebook are experiencing. Uh, connected TV is actually driven by uh, a, a new form of cookie, and this new form of cookie is called UID2. Now, what's brilliant about UID2 is it was actually created by Trade Desk. And I want to be clear, okay? Maybe I'm slightly biased. I'm, a, I'm a, an investor in Trade Desk, okay? Uh, but I want to explain why. People always ask me why. And why aren't you investing in Netflix or Disney or Roku? Here's why. UID2 was created by Trade Desk, but they purposefully made it open source, in my opinion, because they're playing 4D chess with the regulators. They don't want the Google problems where people, you know, we've got these antitrust concerns for Google leading to a disaster 
with uh, with with potential uh, Google advertising and their basic uh, advertising monopoly, right? Uh, and, and that's because they have uh, like ninety percent sell side control of the sell the, the inventory for advertising. But UID two is is basically different from third party cookies, but it's somewhat similar in that basically users provide consent to a publisher by sharing their email address and then a unique ID is created with that email address. Google has one that uses its, uh, that's sort of a new cookie that uses your phone number or your login ID uh, when you're logged in with Google to kind of track you around. But with UID2, it's sort of the competitor to Google's versions. UID2, you're using email addresses to create unique and encrypted IDs to make sure that your data remains private, but as long as Trade Desk or some of these connected TV platforms can capture about 10 to 15% of users, they can anonymously model data much better than the old cookie system, uh, and they're starting to use AI to help model the data and make sure that people are placing their ads with the highest ROI. And that's where you're seeing declines in linear TV advertising. There's no doubt that linear TV is going over to connected TV. Then it's just a matter of who's winning. And Trade Desk so far is one of the big winners. They have something called the Koa AI. You could learn more about that, but basically it's really good at using AI to find your best customers via lookalike modeling uh, and trying to take the data that they do capture. They use UID2 to do this. They learn a lot more with UID2. The estimates are that the Trade Desk framework could, to, it could basically increase ROI uh, or CPMs by about 116% compared to some of the older forms of cookies. Uh, and really, the fact that UID2 is open source and is essentially a self-regulated platform limits you from antitrust uh, complaints. You know, a lot of other people are like, Kevin, why aren't you investing in Google? It's like, well, you're investing in Google for... Uh, advertising, but advertising is plummeting at Google. You could try to go for the hype of, oh, well, it's sold off, maybe buy the dip on Google because they do have AI. But, you know, other companies have AI too and are actually making money and and, and, and are growing. And this to me is, is hands down trade desk. So look, yeah, am I biased because I'm an investor in it? Of course, but I'm also defending my position as to why, why I invest in trade desk. Now, I'll give you a quick uh, valuation on trade desk. Uh, just really, we'll do a quick little peg ratio here. And then I've got to go to the course member live stream. I'm trying to get that course member live stream started a little bit earlier, uh, regularly here, but but I, I, I keep talking too much on this stream. Uh, so uh, we are looking for the end of 2023 to be looking at about a $1 EPS, which does mean that it's about a buck five, which does mean that right now at 55 bucks, Trade Desk is trading a little rich at 52.3 times. They are expected to grow at about 30 to 35%. Let's go conservative and take 52 divided by 30. It puts you at about a 1.73 times peg ratio for Trade Desk. But that's my thesis on Trade Desk. A lot of people have been asking uh, about it and uh, I figured I'd, uh, I'd add some of my opinion on that. So, uh, but yeah, otherwise, otherwise I'm not a big fan of the, uh, of the, um, uh, the, the advertising space. This is really the only player I find interesting. And uh, there you have it. Thank you so much for watching. Appreciate you coming to another Meet Kevin Report. Hopping straight over to the Course Member live stream now. Thanks so much. Goodbye.